Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray. Father, we ask we ask that as we consider your word together, as we reflect on who your son is, specifically, What he has taken on as our mediator. Who he is as our mediator in that work of saving us. And answering the problems inherent in our sin. We pray that as we consider this text that we would see more clearly who Jesus is. And what Jesus has done for us. That we would trust him more. That we would overflow with gratitude. We would honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we survey the world around us, and especially as we consider our own hearts, we see the effects of the fall. We see what's happened as a result of the fact that we are sinners by nature. Now, when I say by nature, I mean as a result of the fall and by choice. We see death, which is ultimately judgment for sin. Sickness, suffering, and pain. We see wickedness. And foolishness and disobedience. We see atheism. Even more than that, we see idolatry. And all manner of false religion. Even as we gaze at the majesty of this creation, and it is majestic. Even as we gaze at it in all of its glory glorious and intricate detail and beauty. Even as we wonder at the incredible potential of humanity for justice and kindness and creativity and beauty and love, and we do see that potential in humanity, even as as we are in the midst of all the common grace of creation, we still see that things are not as they're supposed to be. 
we find ourselves plagued by what the scholar Francis Turretin, a really Protestant scholastic who wrote centuries ago, called the threefold misery of man. I don't think that's original to him, but he writes of the threefold misery of man. We see it all around us. What is that misery? What is that threefold misery of man? Well, in our therapeutic age, the day in which we live now, which might be appropriately termed the therapeutic age, we tend to um, see or say maybe that our threefold misery is something like our hurts, our habits, and our hang-ups. That's our misery. We've been victimized by others. Whether that's your parents or your government or the majority ethnicity, culture, or some school teacher, or some family member, or your sibling, or your employer. We've been victimized by others. And our true selves have not been rightly appreciated and rightly treated. We deserve better. And we must learn to love ourselves, to actualize our potential, to be all that we can be. But biblically, biblically our threefold misery, which is brought by the fall of mankind into sin, is these three things. Ignorance. Guilt and the tyranny or slavery that sin brings. The first misery that I mentioned there is ignorance. That's what Turretin comes after. What do I mean by ignorance? We've been handed over. We've been, if you will, we have given ourselves over to the foolishness, the blindness, and the darkness of the lie. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. Keep your Hands in Hebrews 1, or hand in Hebrews 1, look at Romans chapter 1. You can't keep both of your hands in Hebrews 1. Well, she can't turn to Romans 1, so your hand, Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Sorry, the imagery I just got in my head of that, with both of your hands there, wondering what to do now. All right, Romans 1 and verse 18. <laughs> I will soon have a meme pop up on my phone from Mikey, just so you know. <laughs> this is how it works when you're up here preaching. For the wrath of God, verse 18 of chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed. That is presently revealed. In other words, the wrath of God is currently being revealed. Say, well, the wrath of God is coming for us. Well, the wrath of God is presently revealed. It's here. The wrath of God is revealed. Now, that doesn't, I'm not talking about his great day of wrath, but the wrath of God is here, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. To suppress something is to stand over it and push it down. In other words, we've exalted ourselves above the truth. So God's wrath is presently here. For what, what's, what's the truth? Look, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. That's the wrath that's presently revealed. He lists three times. He gave them up or gave them over to their sin. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, listen, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever Amen. You see, we've been given over because we have bought into the lie. We've exchanged the truth about God for the lie. And therefore, our foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, we've become fools. Our minds have been corrupted. Our hearts have been corrupted. There are these, what we technically would call the noetic effects of sin. Noetic, noose, the mind. Everything has been affected, not just your body that's dying, but your mind and your heart have been darkened. So that Jesus will say, you're blind, you're deaf, you're in darkness, your heart is hard, you're spiritually dead, you're ignorant. Sin has brought about the misery of man that we call ignorance. We've become ignorant of the truth. The second misery is guilt. We're in the misery of guilt. And I do not mean something merely that we experience, like subjectively I experience the feeling of guilt. That's true too. But I mean the legal status of guilt. Our legal status as those in, our, in and of ourselves who are guilty. We are guilty of sinning against our holy God. All, we are all guilty of transgressing the law of God. James 2.10 says that if we violated even one of God's, law, God's laws, we've transgressed the whole of God's law. Look at Romans chapter 3. Since you're already in Romans 1, go to Romans chapter 3. Look at this idea of guilt. It's also in James 2, but let's just look at it in Romans 3. Verse 19, as Paul concludes this um, passage from 118 through 320 about our sin and our guilt, as he concludes this whole section of his letter in Romans 3, he says this, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable. That's, the whole world may be shown to be guilty, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous and just in his sight, since through the law, 
comes knowledge of sin. Listen, when you stand before God, you're not going to stand before God and as he says something to you about your, if you will, entrance into his glorious presence on the day of judgment at your death, you're not going to stand before him and open your mouth and begin to go on about your good works under the law. It isn't going to happen. You're going to stand before a holy God and your mouth is going to be shut because you will know your own inherent unrighteousness, your own law-breaking. And you will be crystal clear about that. You will not make a case for your law-keeping. Will not happen. That's what Paul's saying. The whole world will be found guilty for sin before the bar of God's judgment, and that guilt must be punished. Justice must be served. God will be shown to be righteous and just. And we're all guilty. We're all ignorant. The third misery is the slavery or tyranny of sin. The slavery or tyranny of sin. Look at Romans 6. Just keep going. Romans 6. I won't get into Paul's whole argument here as he's talking about the fact that we have been freed from slavery to sin. I just want to reflect on the reality that in and of ourselves, in our fallen state, Prior to salvation in Christ, we were slaves to sin. Look at verse 16 of Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He's talking about what happens as a result of coming to faith in Christ. You have been freed from sin. That the new covenant promise is that God will write his law on your heart. That he will put a new spirit within you. That he'll take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that he will cause you to walk in his statutes and his laws and his commandments. He will make you obedient from the heart. That is a work of God's grace by the spirit of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what you need to understand is we need that work precisely because we are under the tyranny of sin. We're born as slaves of sin. In our fallen state, man is not, I want you to hear this, in our fallen state, man is not free. I do not mean that man does not make his own volitional choices and that those are not real choices and that he is not responsible for those choices. Of course that's all true. My point is that he is not free because he is a slave to sin. And when your heart and your life and your choices are directed toward foolishness and ungodliness and wickedness, that is not freedom. Nothing free about that. That's slavery to unrighteousness and sin. We're not free. Let me say it this way. In our fallen state, we're, under, we're enslaved to sin. We're under its tyranny. We cannot not sin. Double negative on purpose. Did you follow me? We cannot not sin. Sin has so universally corrupted us all that it is now 
natural to us. Though it was not natural in our original created state, it has become something like we would call a sin nature. It's actually a corruption of what humanity is supposed to be. It's a dehumanizing of what we're meant to be. No matter how much we advance in technology and education and wealth and health, we find that all men are still enslaved to sin. Don't we? The great century, the 20th century, when we were supposed to finally have arrived as as man, when we finally had the technology necessary in our minds to overcome and the universal education necessary to overcome what is our very brutal, inhumane past, that century became our most brutal and inhumane century on record. No matter how much we advance in technology and education and wealth and health, we find that all men are still enslaved to sin. Ignorance of the true God, guilt for sin, and slavery to sin are the threefold misery of man due to sin. And this ignorance, guilt, and slavery that we currently experience as the wrath of God for our sin, I want you to hear this, what we are currently experiencing all around us, this misery, is just a foretaste of the eternal wrath of God to come. Please hear me. Your biggest problem is not your victim status, however horrific that may be. Your biggest problem is not your government. It isn't your economic status. It isn't your family. It isn't your psychiatric disorder. It isn't your addiction. It isn't your physical malady. Now, I acknowledge those can all be awful problems, and I do not mean to suggest a lack of compassion for any of them. But your biggest problem confronts you at every funeral and in every cemetery. Death is coming for you. And it's been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And all the horrors of this present darkness... And it can be quite horrific. Cannot be compared to the eternal conscious torment of hell in God's wrath to come. The deepest, darkest depression. The most horrific abuse. The most murderous dictator cannot compare to the wrath of God coming in hell for sinners. That stuff is a small taste. It's God's present wrath warning you about God's future wrath. So how is this threefold misery answered? How's it answered? How are we saved Where do we look for salvation? And please note, we are asking how we are saved from the wrath of God for our sin. We're not just asking how we're saved 
from the temporal consequences of our sins. But from the wrath of God for our sins. We're asking both how we are saved from the present misery of God's wrath from our sins and how we're saved from the eternal misery of God's wrath for our sins. And I ask this question because man has struggled for a million different answers to our misery. Oh, if we just had universal education, we would answer the problem. And what we've created is smarter, more ingenious, more creative, evil people. Think of the most evil people in the history of the world. They're geniuses and quite well educated. Medicine will answer the problem. All we've done is prolonged the amount of time that we have to suffer the indignity of this world. In one sense. There's good things to medicine, don't get me wrong. Government will solve the problem. Wait, to which we all laugh. Okay. Therapy will solve the problem. At best, it may make you feel justified that the real problem is not you, but something outside of you. Religion will solve the problem. And when I say religion, I mean in the bad sense. There is good religion. I'm talking about externalism only, being good for, to live a more pleasant life. It provides quite the justification for sinners in their own minds, and it's dangerous. Irreligion. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Financial and vocational success will solve the problem. Listen, folks, if you haven't paid attention to the news lately, the most successful, popular, wealthy people in the world are regularly committing suicide. It doesn't solve the problem. Entertainment and distraction, that'll solve the problem. If I could just find a way to constantly distract myself from dealing with the problem, I'll watch TV all the time, I'll be on social media constantly, I will find an ever-increasing number of distractions to keep me from dealing with the problem. The list goes on and on. In the case of the audience to the book of Hebrews... When all was difficult for them, they were tempted to return to the Mosaic Covenant with all of its externally glorious buildings, ceremonies, holidays, priests, sacrifices, and national glory. That's what they wanted to return to. Now, we don't generally share that temptation in the same way. However, we share some variation of that temptation because we share the same threefold misery brought about by sin. So here's the question. I've been asking this in this entire introduction. How is that threefold misery answered? And that brings us to Hebrews 1 1 through 4. As we look at this text, I want to look at the answer we're given for that threefold misery. The answer we're given for that threefold misery. And the answer is, is astoundingly simple. The answer is the Son. The answer is Jesus. That is the Christian claim. But, but I, here's what I want to look at because 
you know, if you've been in Sunday school, to answer, how do we answer our threefold misery? You know to say, Jesus. Okay, great. That's right. Here's what I want to look at, though, is how is Jesus the answer to that threefold misery? And I want to answer this way. He answers our threefold misery brought by our sin with his threefold mediatorial office. Big, big term there. His threefold office as mediator. He answers our threefold misery. His threefold office is prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. So I want to look at these three offices today as we conclude this four-verse sentence and before we pick up some of the implications of that in a couple of weeks, but I want to look at these three offices today. So let's look first at the first one, prophet. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is a reference to the revelation we have in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the final word. He is the revelation of God. He is the wisdom of God. All other prophets before him spoke for God. He is God's speech. All other prophets had the word of God. He is the word of God. All other prophets brought some revelation. He is the revelation of God. All other prophets spoke wisely. He is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the prophet. Now, I spent time on this early in our series, so I'm not going to do much today. But I want to go to what that prophetic office answers. His office of prophet answers, I want you to hear this, his office of prophet answers our misery of ignorance. As Francis Turretin said, his prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. The prophet shows God to us. He enlightens the mind by the Spirit. He is the light of the world who shines into our darkness. He makes the blind to see and the deaf to hear. He is the one who in the fullness of time announces to us that today is the day of salvation. That the great jubilee of our God has come. And as Paul says, and I want you to hear this because it's important. The cross is where the prophet, Jesus, teaches us the wisdom of God. He teaches us the wisdom of God. He declares to us the wisdom of God. From the cross. The cross, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, is foolishness to men. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The prophet, Jesus Christ, by his spirit, opens our eyes and teaches us to see the wisdom of God in Christ and him crucified. So his prophetic office answers the misery of our ignorance. Second, his priestly office. His priestly office. Continue down. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Continue in verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now notice, we've gotten all these descriptors of him, that he is not only the prophet, but he is himself very God. And now it goes on to say, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who is very God of very God, the one who is light of light, he made purification for sins. Now listen, I spent an entire sermon on that last week. But this morning, I want to bring us to how this priestly office of Jesus answers our misery. His priestly office answers the misery of our guilt. His prophetic office answers the misery of our ignorance. His priestly office answers the misery of our guilt. We stand guilty of sin. Who who among us has not sinned? In case you're unaware of your sin, let me say this. If you don't think you've sinned, you've just sinned. You have violated all of the Ten Commandments. Want to run through them real quick? You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever, in the whole of your life, placed something before him? In other words, in his presence. No other gods in my presence. Have you ever made something else the ultimate, if you will, devotion of your heart and mind. Yes, of course you have. Every time you sin, you prove that. Something just became more important than honoring him. Second commandment, shall make no graven images. You won't worship me like the pagans worship there. Have you ever tried to come to God apart from the ways that he has commanded he be approached? For example, in Christ, by the Spirit? Of course you have. You've attempted by your own works to come before him. You've attempted to barter with him. I would bet money that every one of you at some point in here prayed a prayer in which you bartered with God. Get me out of this and I will start being good. Third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay. Well, I've never said GD or JC and, you know, I haven't done that. Okay. Taking the Lord's name in vain is a lot more than that, folks. I'll give you some examples. Have you ever sung the Lord's name or prayed the Lord's name or spoken the Lord's name or read the Lord's word with less than the reverence which he deserves? Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or called yourself a Christian, taking his name upon you and then lived in an ungodly way in front of people or in private. You've taken the Lord's name in vain. Fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. I'll just keep moving. Fifth commandment, I don't even need to make the case. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It's not just about honoring your parents, but it's about authority, honoring all authority. But did you, did you ever disobey your parents? Have you ever dishonored them as older adults? Have you ever dishonored any authority? Your boss? A police officer? Right? We go on and on. 
We'll keep going. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. I've never murdered anybody. Jesus says if you've murdered a man in your heart, you have. So have you ever called someone fool, worthless, despised someone in your heart, wished ill for them? Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. You ever lusted or committed adultery? In other words, acted out on your lust? Eighth commandment, don't steal. I've never stolen anything, seriously? Come on. Have you ever stolen your boss's time? In other words, played around doing something else at work during hours that your boss is paying for? You just stole his money or her money. Ninth commandment, shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You ever gossiped about anybody? Ever told a lie? Tenth commandment, don't covet your neighbor's anything. I know you have. We'll keep moving. We've broken them all. And he is our great high priest, made purification for our sins. He offered himself to take away the guilt of our sin and bring us forgiveness and righteousness. He went to the cross. God made him who knew no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear the exchange? Jesus went to the cross and became the curse of God for you. Jesus went to the cross and became sin for you. He atoned for you. He made purification for sins. And he then offers you forgiveness and righteousness in him. Further, as our ever-living priest, he speaks to us by his spirit and through his word to console us and to comfort us and to tell us that we are his, that we are forgiven, that he has paid it all. As our priest, he leads us to God. As our prophet, he tells us about God. His cross is where he accomplished his great priestly work of atoning for our sins, of taking our guilt upon himself. The same cross where he proclaimed the wisdom of God as the prophet is the cross where he proclaimed the mercy of God. As our priest. At the cross he cried out, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. If you ever wonder if God loves you. And if you ever wonder if God has your good in mind. Whether he would be merciful to you. You need look no further than the cross of Christ. He proclaims to you there clearly that he loves you. Clearly. That he's taken away your ignorance and declared to you the truth. Clearly. That he's atoned for your sins. Further, because he's seated at the right hand of God, we can know, we can know 
that his work of propitiation is done. In other words, he no longer has to offer sacrifices for sins. He's finished with his work. He's seated at the right hand of God, and we know that he ever intercedes for us. Ever intercedes for us as our priest. So his prophetic office answers our ignorance, and his priestly office answers our guilt. Third, he is the king. He is the king. Look at Hebrews 1, 3 again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, now catch this phrase, he sat down. Part of that is speaking about the completion of his atoning work, but there's more to it than the completion of his atoning work. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he is the king, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. After making purification for sins, after his humiliation, he was exalted. After being our atoning sacrifice, our great high priest, he sat down to rule and reign as our king. Now this is clearly a reference to Psalm 10.1, the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. We see it again in Hebrews 1.13, drop down there. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, that's God the Father ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to hear, why don't you look with me at Psalm 110 briefly. Look with me at Psalm 110. Keep your hand in Hebrews 1 and look at the Psalms right in the middle of your Bible. 110, Psalm 110. This is a Psalm of David. The Lord, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. It's a fascinating text. Yahweh says to Adonai. What's interesting about this is the Hebrew would not have pronounced the word Yahweh. When they saw the word Adonai, they would say, excuse me, the word Yahweh, they would say Adonai. If you hear a Hebrew, if you hear a Hebrew teacher, a Jewish teacher, when he comes to that Hebrew word Yahweh, he doesn't say it. He says the word Adonai. So when you read this text, it would, here's how you would hear it. As you sang it, Adonai says to my Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says this clearly cannot be talking about David, nor, the, nor a son of David, a human, but it must be talking about him because David is still dead and in his tomb. So who is the Lord who's sitting at his right hand? It's the Christ who resurrects from the dead, the eternal king. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now look at the next phrase. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. See, he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Now check out verse four. The Lord has sworn. 
and will not change his mind. You, Adonai, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, he is, the son is, the priest king. He is himself God, the king, and the priest. He is the one who is what Adam failed to be. You know, in the garden, Adam is supposed to keep the garden. He's supposed to guard it. He's to guard it, defend it. And he's supposed to serve in it. That's the Hebrew word for the service of a priest. He is a priest and a king in the garden. He fails in both tasks. Israel fails in their priesthood, Levitical priesthood, and their kings, the Davidic kings. You see it from the getty-up, from the start. The priests fail, the kings fail. But Christ is the priest king. He is what Adam failed to be, what Israel fails to be, and in him, God saves us from God. As the king, he conquers all of our enemies. He subdues the tyranny of sin. He sets the captives free from slavery to sin. Hear Jesus say that about himself? As he reads Isaiah 61 and refers to himself, listen to what he says in Luke 4, just briefly. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, that's to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He is the prophet. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his jubilee. He subdues the tyranny of sin. He redeems us from bondage to sin and death. As Francis Turretin says, as king, Jesus, by his spirit of sanctification, subdues rebellious affections. He is the power of God, and thus he powerfully applies the gospel to us and to our hearts, as only the Lord can do. At the cross as king, I want you to hear this, at the cross as king, he triumphed over Satan, and he put him on display, and he crushed him under his feet. I point this out because I don't think we reflect enough on how the cross demonstrates that he is prophet, that's where he teaches us the wisdom of God, that he is priest, it's where he makes atonement for our sins, and that he is king. It is where he crushes the head of the serpent. Paul references this when he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, forgiving us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Where? At the cross. And he put them to open shame. 
by triumphing over them in him. Christ triumphed over his enemies, over your enemies at the cross. And as our returning king, he will soon crush Satan under our feet. Christ is our prophet and our priest and our king. He has brought an end to our threefold misery of ignorance and guilt and slavery to sin through his threefold office of prophet and priest and king. Now our confession, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, sums this up very well in chapter 8 and verse 10. This is not original to them. This has been said for a hundred years prior to them writing this or more. Listen to what they say. This number and order of offices, the threefold office, is necessary. For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. And in respect to our averseness and our utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. And it's because he is this son, this Messiah, this mediator, this prophet, priest, and king, that he has inherited the name that is above all names, to which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I exhort you to look to him and be saved. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would trust evermore in your Son, that we would know him as our mediator, our prophet, the one who tells us the truth and dispels the ignorance, the one who shows us and proclaims to us the wisdom of God from the cross, our priest, the one who makes purification for our sins, who atoned for us, who canceled the record of debt for our sin with its legal demands that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Whoever lives to intercede for us and our King crushed the serpent under his feet at the cross, who put the principalities and powers to open shame, triumphing over them, and who subdues our rebellious affections and draws us to himself by his spirit, frees us from the tyranny of sin, and keeps us secure to the end. We pray that we would trust him evermore, look to him more, 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.